So the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to spend yourself on behalf of people who can never pay you back? And is it worth it to spend yourself on people who may not even be grateful? You may never get a thank you. You may never see any change in their life, either because of their decisions or circumstances. Is it worth it? Maybe you have heard the expression, yeah, but when you give, you always get so much back in return. Or maybe you hear, oh, yeah, I, I went thinking I, I was going to serve, but man, I got so much more back. I, I'm not sure that's true, always. I mean, maybe sometimes there are deeply rewarding experiences. Maybe the the woman does smile and say, oh, thank you. You must be from the motor club. Thanks for helping. But what about those opportunities where you serve, you spend yourself on behalf of someone, and you don't get the thank you, and instead of seeing a life rescued or transformed, it ends. Or it takes a turn and you ask yourself, really? Is that all? We're in this series called Spent, and today we are looking at what does it look like practically to spend our lives on behalf of others, while at the same time doing so in a way that doesn't leave us exhausted. It is possible, certainly, to spend yourself on behalf of others relentlessly and end up yourself totally spent in all the wrong ways, so there is discernment certainly required here, but kind of the thesis of this whole series has been there actually is, in the way of thinking of Jesus, there actually is a way of living your life, spending your life in such a way where there is a fullness and there is an expansion and there is a richness of life that we experience when we spend ourselves. So today, we are looking at a we're going to look at a parable that when Wes was de- uh, designing this series, he looked at this particular parable and he said, Mark, I'd like you to teach on that. And I read it and I, at first I was like, yes, that'll be great. And then I read it again. I was like, oh no. Because <laughs> I think what you'll see, regardless of where you are on your own journey, I think what you'll see about this parable is it's incredibly interesting. It's incredibly layered. It It's incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging, especially for people like you and me, 21st century North Americans, for whom the idea of spending ourselves on behalf of others, especially those who can't pay us back, can oftentimes seem awfully futile and, frankly, sometimes a real waste of time. So before we get into the passage, just a warning that uh, I have grown up in churches and I have been at churches. And there is a way to look at this passage in such a way that is not at all helpful that would reduce this passage to just the niceness of it without the sharp edge of it. And one of my personal goals today is to avoid the trap of what I call fluffy bunny Christianity. Uh, Fluffy bunny Christianity is all the wonder of the message of Jesus, all the good stuff, without kind of the hard edge of application. 
someone once asked the late Professor Dallas Willard, how do you measure, if a person decides to follow Jesus, how does a person measure their own growth and their own transformation? And Dallas Willard responded, simple, routine obedience to the very things that Jesus said. Simple, routine obedience to the very things that Jesus said. So beyond fluffy bunny Christianity, this parable is going to offer us a deep and inviting challenge, but something that will likely disturb many of us, but hopefully in all the right ways. So we're going to look at a parable, a backstory and then a parable found in the biography of Jesus, of Jesus' life, found in Luke. And I'm going to start in Luke chapter 14. If you'd like to open up your Bible or look at your handheld device, I'm actually going to be reading from the message paraphrase uh, because I think it captures the flow of the story really well. And it'll be on the screens too if you just want to go there. So we're going to dive in. Luke chapter 14... And here we go. One time when Jesus went for a Sabbath meal with one of the top leaders of the Pharisees, all the guests had their eyes on him, watching every move. Right before him, there was a man hugely swollen in his joints. So Jesus asked the religion scholars and the Pharisees present, is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath? Yes or no? They were silent. So he took the man healed him, and sent him on his way. Then he said, Is there anyone here who, if a child or animal fell down a well, wouldn't rush to pull him out immediately, not asking whether or not it was the Sabbath? They were stumped. There was nothing they could say to that. Now we'll fast forward a few verses after Jesus talks a little bit about the very nature of some very interesting protocol about where you sit at a great banquet table. Jesus then turns to the host, the man who had invited him to this banquet, and he says, the next time you put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends and family and rich neighbors, the kind of people who will return the favor. Invite some people who never get invited out, the misfits from the wrong side of the tracks. You'll be and experience a blessing. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned. Oh, how it will be returned at the resurrection of God's people. That triggered a response from one of the guests. How fortunate the one who gets to eat dinner in God's kingdom. Jesus followed up. Yes. For there once was, and now this is the parable that Jesus will teach us. For there once was a man who threw a great dinner party and invited many. When it was time for dinner, he sent out his servant to the invited guests, saying, Come on in. The food's on the table. They all begged off, one after another, making excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of property and I need to look it over. Send my regret. Another said, Oh, I just bought five team of oxen and I really need to check them out. Send my regrets. Yet another said, I just got married. I need to go home to my wife. The servant went back and told the master what had happened. He was outraged. He told the servant quickly, get out into the city streets and alleys. Collect all who look like they need a square meal. All the misfits and homeless and wretched you can lay your hands on and bring them here. The servant reported back, Master, I did what you commanded and there's still room. The master said, then go. 
to the country roads, whoever you find, drag them in. I want my house full. Let me tell you, not one of those originally invited is going to get so much as a bite at my dinner party. Now, I don't know if we can necessarily pick up on all that's going on here as we sit thousands of years removed from the actual events of this. But what I want you to try to do this morning is immerse yourself in this story. Imagine what it would be like to be in the area, in this space where Jesus is actually teaching here. Because the, make no mistake about it, the religious leaders, the religious scholars, the teachers of the law, heard what Jesus said in that parable, and they were deeply offended. Because they understood that Jesus was talking about a God who wants to create, at the end of history, an experience of an amazing dinner banquet. And yet, there would be those who would choose not to be there. And make no mistake about it, the religious leaders and scholars of the day, when they heard this, they would know that Jesus is saying, wait a second, he's saying that we're not going to come. He's saying that we're not going to come to the table. The one thing that we've been waiting for We're not going to want to be at that? You see, there were a group of people in Jesus' day who were very religiously devoted. They were very moral in their conduct. They were deeply troubled by the reality that in Israel, in Palestine, it was occupied territory. They had no love of the Romans. And some of the things that the Romans did were absolutely morally reprehensible and despicable to them. Furthermore, there was a puppet king named King Herod who was for many a vile, vile man. And so there was a collection of religious scholars, teachers, lawyers who believed, many for good reasons, that if they could only devote themselves religiously to the Old Testament of the Bible and all the rules and regulations and all the do's and don'ts, if they could observe those and then some, that they could usher in God's kingdom, that they could bring about a a Messiah who would come and make everything right. These were, in a sense, the precursors to the Marines because they believed that God is looking for a few good men who had the mettle, the determination to be exceedingly devoted to the cause of God in, in righteous living. And on one level, it's easy to pick on those people because we see Jesus continually interacting with them. But on another level, there was, there was a, a noble desire that they had to really live obediently. The problem was that so many of them over and over and over missed the point, which is why this parable and this teaching is preceded by this very important interaction with this sorrowful sorrowful human being with this terrible condition. So if you grew up with a Bible in your house that maybe sat on the bookshelf, or if you've grown up in a church uh, with an older Bible, if you turn to this passage, it would say 
that this man in the beginning, before the parable, in the beginning of the story, that this man had this condition called dropsy. That's a term that we don't use very much anymore. It's only used once in the Bible. And if you looked it up on Wikipedia today, it would, it would be referenced as edema. It's a intense swelling. That's why I chose this paraphrase from Eugene Peterson. Intense joint swelling. Some of you perhaps have experienced a form of this firsthand, or you may know loved ones who have experienced a form of this. It's awful. Imagine, again, picture yourself with a dinner party ready to begin. Jesus invited on the Sabbath to a dinner party. But somehow, this gentleman gets there first. Whether or not he heard earlier in the day or early in the week that Jesus was going to be at the, at the dinner party, maybe he, as soon as he found out about that, he made his way. He started walking because as someone so swollen, it would take him longer to get there. And he said, I'm hearing stories all over the land of people being healed of their sicknesses and of their diseases, people having demons cast out of them, people with chronic illnesses finally being made well, people paralyzed, able to walk again, people blind, able to see, I think Jesus can help me too. Maybe some friends helped him get there. But however he got there, this man, swollen, bloated, so difficult to even move, positions himself smack dab in the middle of the entryway to this house so that Jesus cannot avoid him. And Jesus at that point is, is confronted with a couple choices. Either he can kind of you know, move alongside or say, hey, love to help but it is the Sabbath. And it's interesting how the Bible, the biographers of Jesus over and over again make a point of saying how frequently Jesus performed miraculous healings on this Sabbath day. And the text tells us that as Jesus confronts this man, their eyes are watching him. And those who are so committed to living a religiously upright life looked at this man and looked at Jesus and said, what is he going to do now? He does know that it's the Sabbath. What's he going to do? They were waiting for Jesus to say or do something so that they could trap him and say, see, fraud. That's no Messiah. A Messiah would know better than to heal someone on the Sabbath. And it's as if Jesus is saying, you're missing the whole point. In our day... This story, in many ways, is reminiscent of uh, something from a few years ago. You see, there were those in Jesus' day, and even before, who would look at a man like this, swollen with uh, this edema, and they would say, well, the reason he's in the position he's in is he's obviously done something wrong. And God is judging him, and this is the consequence. Either that or his parents did something wrong, and this is God's righteous judgment on a man who's lived immorally. So there would have been those in the religious establishment of the day that, said, that would say, hands off, let God judge him, because he's obviously done something wrong. And this is an example of how far our, our culture is deteriorating, that we have people like this, so let them alone. And in our day... This is reminiscent to what happened in the early 1980s 
when the first reported cases of HIV started, started occurring in San Francisco and certain parts of Africa and Southeast Asia, there were many within the religious community that said, HIV is a sexually transmitted disease. God is judging them for their immoral lifestyle. So let them be. Let them suffer the consequences of God's judgment. And now years later, we look and sometimes reflect on that and saying, oh, please tell us we didn't believe that. But just as it was real in the early 1980s with HIV, it was real 2,000 years ago with something like this. And here, Jesus has the audacity to say, regardless of your morals, regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of what you look like, regardless of the day of the week, the point of living in the fullness and freedom of God's kingdom is to live a life of mercy. And in front of everyone, Jesus says, I don't care if it's the Sabbath. And he takes and he heals this man. Now imagine witnessing a healing like that. A man bloated with fluid in his limbs. Would he have kind of shrunk in their very presence? What would that have looked like? What would it have been like to be in the presence of a healing like that? Yet strangely, and we see this so often in the teachings of Jesus, rather than there being jubilation, shouts of joy, oh my goodness, did you just see that? I can't believe we're here to witness that. Over and again, again, because it was the Sabbath, you have the religious leaders saying, I cannot believe he did that. And though they were silenced by the question of Jesus, things like this, make no mistake about it, were the exact kinds of things that got Jesus arrested and eventually killed. Because Messiah is no better than to live that way. And Jesus is saying, you missed the whole point. This is what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is upon you. And it's here and it will last forever. But if you don't want to be a part of healings like this, even on the Sabbath, you're not going to want to be a part of the great banquet anyway. And you'll find every excuse imaginable not to participate in what God's kingdom is all about. But this is the invitation. That Jesus is saying, actually, your pictures of what that great kingdom banquet will be are likely a lot different from reality. And his invitation is for people like you and me, just as then, to participate in actually what the real fullness of God's kingdom is all about. The problem is, and there's, uh, we need to be a little careful here, because even for people like us, thousands of years later, there's a real trap in this text. And in the text, it's in verse 14, where Jesus says, and you will indeed, if you live this kingdom life and extend kindness to people who have no ability to pay you back, that you will indeed uh, be repaid at the resurrection, that you will receive a blessing at the resurrection. And if you caught that in the text, 
the challenge with that in 21st century North America is there is plenty of teaching in our world today that has a form of Christian theology that's way out of line with what Jesus came to teach us. And that's this thinking. Perhaps you've heard this expression. Perhaps you've heard someone say uh, when someone does something nice for someone, especially someone who's poor, oh, that'll just be another jewel in your crown. Yeah. Now, there, the Bible does talk about crowns and heaven and so forth, exact, what exactly that means, we don't really know. But there's this thinking that uh, the point of once you decide to follow Jesus and decide to do nice things, that somehow you're, you're earning some credit balance. And that, that's what Jesus is saying, that you'll be repaid at the resurrection, right? And some of us kind of have, have grown up thinking like, well, that sounds odd. You know, it's Academy Awards season, and a couple years ago, there was this great movie with George Clooney called Up in the Air. And you remember George Clooney he, traveling uh, frequently, and, he, you know, with all these air miles that he's accumulating, he had this thing, he had this goal, you know, I've got a number, this, this elite status that he was going, that he was gunning for. And so often in Christian circles today, there's this same kind of thinking that if you do enough of the right things that you get this elite status. So there's this picture of, of heaven kind of being St. Peter at the pearly gates and saying, welcome. All right. Tell me your name again. Yeah. Okay. There you are. Yes. Okay. I see that you are a recent convert to Christianity. Um, so we're glad that you're here. A little late in the game, but um, we have general admission seating over here for you. Uh, make yourself uh, comfortable. Uh, next, please. Oh. Yes. Oh, I see that you worked at the soup kitchen a good bit. Oh, have been a Christian for five or more years. That's great. Okay. We have a grandstand seating over here. Make your way there. That'll be nice. So glad that you're here. Yes, we see your names at the top of the list. You are a missionary. So grateful that you serve those poor people in Africa. Yes, Mother Teresa will be able to greet you at the suite level, on the 400 level. You'll have a wonderful time up there. Please wave at the people in general admission. They'll appreciate that. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I mean, is that how it works? Is that the reward? Like, ooh, goody. We'll finally be able to cash in our reward points in heaven. Or there's this vision, perhaps, of, you know, there, Jesus talked about a mansion. Does that mean we get a really good seat if we do a lot of good things? Or we have a really nice view, expansive view of the new heavens and the new earth? Actually, the reward is people. You know, in answer to the question, is it worth it? I've been uh, emailing some friends here at Warehouse who have been really living out this passage by serving themselves, spending themselves on behalf of people, some of our uh, down-and-out neighbors here in Charlotte who have no ability to ever pay them back. Uh, these are neighbors who will never be able to be on their LinkedIn profile. These are neighbors who will never give great Christmas gifts. They will not be professional references. They have no ability to financially benefit any of our volunteers. And yet they are spending themselves on behalf of their neighbors. And as some of these guys have been talking about their own journey, one of the real challenges for them has been, you know, in the midst of the disappointment, we are not responsible for their choices. 
You know, these guys are spending themselves and sacrificing like crazy and putting up with uh, phone calls at awkward hours and, and dealing with um, half-truths and, and so forth, but they see potential in these neighbors. The down and outs. And their greatest desire is for change. And their greatest desire is that it, at this conclusion of history, at this heavenly banquet, you know, as good as it's going to be to have a great spread of food where you don't need to worry about calories, where you don't need to worry about cholesterol or gluten sensitivities because it's a heavenly feast, you know, it's the feast that we've all been created for. As good as that will be, the great desire will be to see these folks that we're spending our lives on behalf of and to see them there. That's the reward. People who look hopeless, people who maybe don't say thank you and people who maybe are terribly ungrateful or just continue to live patterns that are so hurtful. The life of following Jesus, the way of Jesus is to say, in humility, you serve with kindness and love. Trusting that God is pursuing all of us in ways that we don't fully realize. And trusting that God will be pursuing everyone to their very last breath. And that we are not responsible for saying yes or no to the invitation to be at the banquet. Instead, we get to participate with Jesus in what he's doing in the world. And pray and pray and pray. That as we look around that banquet table, we'll be able to look and see, you're here. I'm so glad. Or to imagine a tap on the shoulder and look up and to see that one person that you've been spending your life on behalf of and you thought there was no hope but somehow you lost track of them and somehow God got a hold of them and they said yes to the invitation to be a part of Jesus and his kingdom. That's the reward. The crowns and all the other stuff, that's secondary. The reward will be a feast with people all around. That's what we're invited into. And so here's where we could just end. And here's where we could just sit warmly in the glow of fluffy bunny Christianity. Or we could say, isn't that wonderful? God loves us and there's a great feast. And we get to be a part of that and hope that our our neighbors will too. Let's pray. But here's where the hard edge comes in. Not because Jesus wants to make us feel bad. Not because Jesus wants to kind of point his fingers and say, do more. But because Jesus wants to invite us into a way of living and spend ourselves in a way that brings fullness and an experience of life, which is how we were designed and how we were created to experience. And it's uh, the challenge and the application, frankly, is really simple. And you might have missed it. Because Jesus turns to the host and he says, the next time you put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends and family and rich neighbors, the kind of people who will return the favor. Instead, invite some people who never get invited out. This isn't theological, kind of ethereal speak. This is really, really practical. And Jesus is asking us now, if you want to be a part of this kingdom movement, who are you going to invite to dinner? Who are you going to invite 
who will never be able to pay you back. You know, one of the practical things that we do in these parts is uh, you do need to exercise discernment in these matters, right? This, Jesus has this wonderful expression, you know, be wise as serpents but gentle as doves. We have a community of people around us so we can bounce ideas off of one another, care for one another, be discerning. And this is why we participate in Room of the Inn. You know, if we wanted to simply serve Make sure that down-and-out folks are taken care of. You know, we could just collect a lot of money, write checks, and say, well, someone else will take care of that. Some other people have the gift of caring for people who are down-and-outs. Let's just let them take care of it. We'll go on with our busy lives. But a number of years ago, some people in this city who take the teaching of Jesus seriously gathered around and said, well, wait a second. Isn't Jesus, in fact, asking us to have regular and routine opportunities in our life to sit down over a meal with people who can never pay us back. And they created this opportunity called Room in the Inn where you bring along some homeless neighbors who go through the Urban Ministry Center, you pick them up and you bring them to a church-like warehouse and you sit down and you have a meal with them. And you share the simple experience of humanity of people eating with other people across the table. And sometimes the conversation is wonderful. Sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes it's funny. And sometimes you wonder, why did I do this again? Because you don't get a thank you. Meatloaf again. I had meatloaf last night. Sometimes folks just want to go to bed after dinner. They don't want to talk at all. Sometimes you sit across the table with someone who's got a goiter or their teeth are really, really bad. Maybe they have HIV. And your job isn't to fix them. Your job isn't to save them. But Jesus, in that very moment, is inviting you just to the experience of a simple humanity, of being with people who can never pay you back, and experiencing, uh, in some way, a real taste of the kingdom that someday... Jesus is telling us there will be at the end of history a banquet and there'll be a lot of interesting faces around the table. And people that we might expect to be there won't be there. And people that we wouldn't expect to be there are in fact there. And this is an invitation for all of us, wherever we are. So let me close just with a story and an opportunity. And the story is from Philip Yancey in his book on prayer. I have seen evidence of God's presence in the most unexpected places. During our trip to Nepal, a physical therapist gave my wife and me a tour of the Green Pastures Hospital, which specializes in leprosy rehabilitation. As we walked along an outdoor corridor, I noticed in a courtyard one of the ugliest human beings I have ever seen. Her hands were bandaged in gauze. She had deformed stumps where most people have feet, and her face showed the worst ravages of that cruel disease. Her nose had shrunken away so that Looking at her, 
I could see into her sinus cavity. Her eyes molted and covered with callus let in no light. She was totally blind. Scars covered patches of skin on her arms. We toured a unit of the hospital and returned along the same corridor. In the meantime, this creature had crawled across the courtyard to the very edge of the walkway, pulling herself along the ground by planting her elbows and dragging her body like a wounded animal. I'm ashamed to say my first thought was, she's a beggar and she wants money. My wife, who has worked among the down and out, had a much more holy reaction. Without hesitation, she bent down to the woman and put her arm around her. The old woman rested her head against Janet's shoulder and began singing a song in Nepali, a tune that we all instantly recognize. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. She is one of our most devoted church members, the physical therapist later told us. Most of our patients are Hindus, but we have a little Christian chapel here, and she comes every time the door opens. She's a prayer warrior. She loves to greet and welcome every visitor who comes to Green Pastures, and no doubt she heard us talking as we walked along the corridor. A few months later, we heard that she died. Close to my desk, I keep a photo that I snapped just as she was singing to Janet. Whenever I feel polluted by the beauty-obsessed culture I live in, a culture in which people pay exorbitant sums to shorten their noses or plump up their breasts to achieve some impossible ideal of beauty while 9,000 people each day die from AIDS for lack of treatment and hospitals like Green Pastures scrape by on charity crumbs, I pull out that photo. I see two beautiful women, my wife smiling sweetly, wearing a brightly colored Nepali outfit she had bought the day before, holding in her arms an old crone who had flunk any beauty test ever devised except the one that matters most. Out of that deformed, hollow shell of a body, the light of God's presence shines out. The Holy Spirit found a home. In some strange way, when we serve those who have no ability to pay us back, We are experiencing what it's like to be followers of the one who died nearly naked, without a penny to his name, homeless, abandoned by his friends, who hung on our cross for his crimes, for which the whole world has its hopes resting on, the shoulders of a homeless man. And you and I are invited to participate with him in his good kingdom and to move out of our own discomfort and serve what Jesus calls the least of these. That's our invitation. And sometimes it's as simple as eating a meal. And so I'm asking you once again, who are you inviting to dinner? The simplest way we know how to do this at Warehouse is to head to the website or email room at warehouse 242 and just say, how can I participate in Room in the Inn? Knowing that these neighbors will never be able to pay us back. In a couple of weeks, we'll be able to serve formerly homeless families through Charlotte Family Housing. Same deal. And maybe for some of you, maybe that's all too frightening right now. Like, wow, I can't even imagine you're wondering. And maybe it starts just by picking up one of these. They're back at the kiosk. They're called zines. 
written by Speak Up vendors, homeless neighbors in our city, writing about their own story in their own words. And for some of us, maybe the first step is just to say, I don't know anyone like that, and maybe I just need to start by reading about stories of people who are a lot different than me and take your first step into our wider, more expansive reality of God's good kingdom. This is what we get to do together. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for the scandal of your kingdom. Thank you that you remind us that simple acts of kindness and simple demonstrations of mercy on behalf of people created in your image are what we were deeply designed to do. Thank you that you invite us not just to a table, but to participate in inviting others to that table. Sometimes with the things that we say, but sometimes by the, just the invitation and the things that we do together in community. Above all, we pray that you would make our hearts soft, Jesus, so that we don't hear voices that condemn us for not doing enough, but that we would respond gladly to your invitation to be a part of your amazing kingdom that's right here, right here in Charlotte. Show us how. For your glory. Amen. Uh, One more quick announcement. If you were here last week, you heard Wes talk about the upcoming Reveal Spiritual Life survey. Here's the deal with this. A number of churches, thousands actually, around the world have participated in this with a desire to hear from people at their church. What's working? What's not? Are you stuck? Where are you growing? What's been really, really good for you in the life of your church? Where... Would you like help? Uh, What does it look like? Are you engaging reading the Bible? What does that look like? Um, The deal is, it's really great because it's a very thorough, in-depth survey, but it's totally confidential. You're not going to get spammed. No, the church won't know who responded to what. And the outcome will be a report for this church's uh, elders and staff to look at to see how are we doing? How are we doing in serving the needs of, of people who call Warehouse Home, whether you've been here a couple weeks, a couple months, or a couple years? How do we need to grow in helping you in your journey to pursue Jesus, regardless of if you're exploring Jesus, uh, if you would consider yourself a longtime follower of of Jesus, wherever you are, how can we help? We're teasing this out because it's going to be about a 30-minute exercise to find a quiet spot in your house or a cafe or whatever, get your favorite music playing, get your favorite beverage right next to you, and and sink your teeth into about 30 minutes of a, of a very meaningful survey that will help us help you. It's Oscar time, so why not quote Jerry Maguire, right? Um, so help, this is coming. It'll be on our website. You'll get emails about it, and it would be an invaluable way for us to learn how we can best serve you and our desire to journey forward together. So with that, let me uh, just encourage you to stand up for our benediction. And my desire is that you would hear uh, the invitation today. Not a finger-wagging, one more thing to do, but an invitation to participate in a fullness and a richness of experience of life with our neighbors here in our city, who we have the privilege of serving alongside and maybe doing something as simple as eating a meal with and experiencing the simple grace of humanity and God's pursuit 
as he unfolds his kingdom in our lives and in our city. We were blessed to be a blessing. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace and his rest this week. Go in peace.